You know, that uh, is a perfect song for what I want to say to you today. And I'm, I'm glad that, that Scott chose to, to lead into the message with that song. Because otherwise, I picked the worst possible week to talk about today's topic. <laughs> Uh, if you don't know what we're talking about today, we're talking about politics and the American church. And I wrote it on Wednesday, and I emailed it to you on Thursday saying this is what we're going to be talking about today with no idea what was going to happen on Friday. And uh, I know many of you are pleased with the decision that happened on Friday. And there are many more that are displeased with the decision that happened on Friday. And if anything, it, it was one more illustration in a long line of illustrations of how deeply divided our country has become and how upset and angry we are about how deeply divided we've become. And it's one example of what I'm going to talk about today. It was just one example of what I want to talk about today. I did not want it to be the main example or the only example. But um, based on what we've been reading on our social media feeds, it, that some of that may be unavoidable. I want to read to you just a couple of paragraphs, a little bit more than a couple, from chapter one of, of Andy Stanley's book, Not In It to Win It. He says, difference is inevitable. Division is a choice. Our nation chose poorly. He's not writing about Friday. He's writing about 2020. I just got to put that in context. So this is, this is, he's writing about what happened in 2020. The church followed suit. In our current cultural climate, there are no neutral topics or neutral people. Everything and everybody is politicized and forced to fit neatly into one of two buckets, a red one or a blue one. This isn't new. Political polarization has been a national reality for decades, but during 2020, the messy but often productive middle ground all but disappeared. And as a result, Americans were pressured to move further right or further left or be left behind. Lines were drawn where lines were deemed unnecessary in the past. Everything became a point of contention. School closings, school openings, mask, protest, and of course, Anthony Fauci. Republicans loved him, then the Democrats claimed him. With the collapse of the middle, nuance left the building. Without nuance, comments are taken more literally than intended, and productive discussion around complex topics becomes virtually impossible. The result, you are for me, or you are against me. It's all or nothing. But every adult knows the world doesn't work that way. Nothing works that way. That way of thinking ensures that things won't work. But as every political pundit knows, all or nothing sells. All or nothing gets votes. It's a donation magnet. It's a brand builder. People should know better. Christians in particular. Unfortunately, and to the point of this book, churches... Church leaders and prominent pastors, along with high-profile leaders of faith-based organization, took their cues from culture and vacated the middle. And to their shame, to our shame, they added their voices to those of their secular counterparts. Not wanting to be left out and certainly not left behind, we entered the partisan fray and we did what everyone else was doing pretty much the way they were doing it. We sided publicly with a party and a candidate and defended both regardless. In short... We forgot what it means to be Christian. Now, again, he's talking about 2020. And if you remember 2020, uh, it was unprecedented. 
and I'm as tired as that word <laughs> as you are, but that's, if you look up the definition of the word unprecedented, that's the best description of what happened uh, in 2020. Quick summary, a pandemic that created an economic shutdown that left us teetering on financial meltdown while navigating social unrest during an election year. That was exhausting. And it still is exhausting. And, and we're still feeling the aftershocks of that event. So when there's an earthquake, you know, there's the main event, and it kind of comes out of nowhere, and we don't expect that it's coming. There were some warning signs, but we weren't paying attention to them, and there's a lot of damage and destruction that comes with the main event, the main shock of an earthquake. But there are aftershocks that continue for sometimes years after the main shock, and we're kind of living in some of the aftershocks of what happened in 2020, and it, and it truly is exhausting, and the church, I agree with Andy Stanley, the church hasn't handled it very well. Any of it, like the pandemic, the economic shutdown, the social unrest, the election. We haven't handled any of it very well. And instead of um, being different and swimming against the tide of culture, we kind of took our cues from culture and we just kind of went right along with whatever culture was doing. And it hasn't served the church very well in that regard as well. Social media hasn't helped things, but it has not caused things. It only accelerated and exposed a direction we were already going in. So we were already moving away from cooperation and compassion and abilities to reason together and to talk together and to be together. We were already moving away from that and moving towards more angry rhetoric and more reactionary and more accusatory and more divisive. And social media is just kind of push the gas pedal down. The pandemic, I saw one expert say, the pandemic just added about 10 years to whatever was already going on culturally. It just moved us 10 years forward into the future. We have a, a statement at this church that I call our operating philosophy, which is not, you don't hear a lot of churches saying, we've got an operating philosophy. You hear a lot of churches saying, we've got a mission statement and a vision statement and we have those things as well. Our mission statement is to love God and love people. And our vision statement is for Jesus and for the city. But we also have an operating philosophy. And that's the, I, I wish I had a different word for it. That's just the best word that I could come up with for what it is. Now, if you've been through any of our step one classes, you've heard me talk about this. Because I talk about it in every single class. The step one class is for new members or people interested in becoming members at Murray Hills. And I always begin by going around the room and letting everybody introduce themselves. And I say, I want to know two things about you. Where are you from? And uh, what kind of church did you grow up in? And so everybody just shares that little bit of information. And people are from all over the place. This, especially within the last 10 years, has changed. It used to be that people were from, well, I'm from Cullioca. I'm from Hornwall. I'm from Santa Fe. Well, now people are from Santa Fe. And uh, now people are from New York, and now people are from Michigan and California. Like, there's, there's this drastic difference in, in um, people are just from everywhere when you go around there. And then we say, what kind of denomination did you grow up in? And it's everything. Presbyterian, Lutheran, Catholic, you know, Assembly of God, Church of Christ, Baptist, uh, a little bit of nothing, a little bit of everything. And then I end that exercise by saying, welcome to Murray Hills. <laughs> you know, like, that's what we want. We like that. We want the diversity. We're a diverse church. We come from different places. We have different backgrounds. Um, we have different denominational backgrounds, different denominational upbringings. We're different ages. Uh, we have different uh, economic backgrounds. 
I don't ask them their political background, but I guarantee you if I did, I'd probably hear all sorts of answers. There'd be Democrats in the room, there'd be Republicans in the room, there'd be Green Party, there'd be Libertarians, there'd be Independents, there'd be a little bit of nothing and a little bit of everything. We, we think that's good. Like we like the diversity and, and we're intentionally trying to become more diverse. We're trying to become more uh, racially diverse as a church and more um, culturally diverse, diverse as a church. And we tell people in that class, I tell people like, this is good. We think it's good to be a diverse church. We think that makes us stronger. As long as we keep the main thing, the main thing, which is Christ, we think having the diversity helps us to be a stronger church. Of course, the obvious question then after that is, well, how in the world do you keep it all together then? I mean, you say you're going to put in a small group, uh, right-leaning people and left-leaning people and theologically conservative people and theologically liberal people and people from New York and people from Texas. You go, you're going to throw all those people in a small group? You're going to throw all those people in a worship service and say, y'all work it out. You know, how do you keep it together? And the answer is we have an operating philosophy. The operating philosophy is a statement that we've adopted. It's a motto that comes from the Restoration Movement. And the Restoration Movement kind of birthed churches like ours it's not original to the Restoration Movement. It probably goes back to the 16th century or so. But in the uh, 19th century, the Restoration Movement used this motto, and it's simply this. In matters of faith, unity. In matters of opinion, liberty. And in all things, love. Another way of saying it is, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, love. Now, what it's saying is, that there are some matters of faith around which we should be unified as a church. But they are very few. Mainly Jesus Christ. There are also some matters of opinion around which we are free to have our own opinions. We have liberty to have differences about that and disagreements about that and a different understanding of what we think God's word says about that. And there are many of those Many of them. I, I, and they change with each generation, interestingly enough. But in all things, whether we are talking about a matter of faith or whether we are talking about a matter of opinion, we have to treat one another with love. We must treat one another. Even when we're talking about matters of faith and we're saying we got to be unified about this, we still have to treat one another with love. Because if we fail to treat one another with love, we fail in the mission of the church. We fail to be the church. Or as, as Andy Stanley put it, we forget what it means to be Christian if we fail to treat one another with love. Now, this statement has served us uh, very well through a lot of doctrinal differences as a church. So we've tackled, you know, all sorts of things about, you know, there's different views of baptism, there's different views of the, the working of the Holy Spirit, uh, different views when it comes to women's role or um, worship styles. or also like we, it's, this, this statement has served us really, really well because when we've dealt with those doctrinal differences, we realize that the main thing is being unified on Christ. As long as we're unified on Christ, we're free to have differences of opinion about what we think about some of these doctrinal issues. And we're free to even continue to worship together with people who see things differently than us and continue to openly fellowship as brothers and sisters with people who see different, differently than us. So, you know, we know that when we come into a worship service, there's going to be some stuff that happens that is not necessarily my cup of tea. You know, like, eh, that's not really what I like. to. That's not really the kind of song I like to sing. That's not really the, kind, the style I like. We know that's going to happen. But if it's helping my brother and sister 
then I'm willing to, to tolerate that because we agree on Christ. And this is, in a family, I don't always get what I want. So I'm, I'm willing to help out, you know, my brother and sister. We realize that that means that we're going to have conversations in small groups or even in the hallways of this church with a brother or sister in Christ that sees a political issue differently than us, that sees a social issue differently than us. And we can discuss that with them in a spirit of gentleness and respect and still walk away saying, that's my brother and that's my sister. They see this differently than me, but that's my brother and that's my sister because we're part of the same family, because we follow the same Lord. And, we'll, and we're going to keep our focus there rather than, than focusing on these lesser issues. So, you know, it, it's okay to not see everything the same as long as we're seeing eye to eye on Christ. Our agreement on Christ should trump all other differences on, on lesser issues. Um, and I like the way Paul put it in Romans because there's a biblical foundation for this statement. This is not just a, a statement out there. There's, there's some biblical foundation for that. And in Romans, Paul was speaking to the church about a controversial issue in their day. And it was about meat sacrificed to idols. That's no longer an issue for us today. I don't have anybody, when everybody meets me, you know, they're coming in, placing membership, and they say, I want to know what the church's position is on meat sacrificed to idols. Because I've, I've got a very strong opinion about that. And I'd like to know before I place membership where this church stands. Nobody does that anymore, right? In Paul's day, they were. That was, that was one of the big issues. Because there was a group of Christians who felt like, you can eat meat sacrificed to idols. What difference does it make? It's just meat. It doesn't make any difference. And there were other Christians that, based on their, their convictions, was like, no, this is not, you can't do this. This was meat sacrificed to an idol. This is not appropriate to eat. And so here's what Paul told them in Romans chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. He said, accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servant stands or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them. Now, that's from the NIV. And, and I love what he says there in terms of that one, I think it's like verse 2 or verse 3, about don't treat with contempt one who does something that you don't think is right, and don't judge one who does something that you don't think is right. Now, what what's trips you up in the NIV is that he talks about accept the one whose faith is weak. So he talks about the weaker brother and the stronger brother, and that always trips us up because we always put ourselves as the stronger one, not the weaker one. So I like... Um, the way the message translates this. And so listen to this. This is Eugene Peterson in the message. Welcome with open arms fellow believers who don't see things the way you do. And don't jump all over them every time they do or say something you don't agree with. Even when it seems that they are strong on opinions but weak in the faith department. Remember, they have their own history to deal with. Treat them gently. For instance, a person who's been around for a while might well be convinced that he can eat anything on the table, while another with a different background might assume he should only be a vegetarian and eat accordingly. But since both are guests at Christ's table, wouldn't it be terribly rude if they fell to criticizing what the other ate or didn't eat? God, after all, invited them both to the table. Do you have any business crossing off the guest list or interfering with God's welcome? If there are corrections to be made or manners to be learned, God can handle that without your help. 
Now, again, that's, that's Peterson's translation of Paul's words to the Romans. And uh, I wish I would have discovered that about two years ago in the middle of 2020, because I think that, that verse would have come in uh, really handy. I want to share another one with you, again from Paul, but I want to use Peterson's translation first this time, and you may not recognize it immediately. So here's the way he does it in the message. Even though I'm free of the demands and expectations of everyone, I have voluntarily become a servant to any and all in order to reach a wide range of people. Religious, non-religious, meticulous, moralist, loose-living, immoralist, the defeated, the demoralized, whoever. I did not take on their way of life. I kept my bearings in Christ, but I entered their world and tried to experience things from their point of view. I have become just about every sort of servant there is in my attempts to lead those I meet into a God-saved life. I did this because of the message. I didn't just want to talk about it. I wanted to be on it, in on it. This is uh, one that we don't recognize as much as we do in the traditional because you probably are much more familiar with language from the NIV or the King James Version or those in which he's, this is the same passage. This, he says it this way. Though I'm free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under God's Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. And that's a powerful statement from Paul. And thank goodness he wrote it 2,000 years ago. Because if he wrote it today, we would cancel him. We, uh, he would get hammered on social media for that line of reasoning right there. To the Jew, I become a Jew. To the Gentile, I become a Gentile. To those under the law, I become like one under the law. To those not under the law, I become like one under the law. The, Paul, pick a side. You can't, there's no, you can't be in the middle here. You can't be wishy-washy. You've got to grow a backbone here, Paul. You can't, you, you're a, being a coward and a sellout. You've got to pick a side. You can't be Jewish and Gentile. You can't be welcoming of people who strictly observe the law and be welcoming of people who don't strictly observe the law. You have to pick a side. You can't be Democrat and Republican. We can't see each other as brothers, Paul. You've got to make a stand. There is no nuance on this issue. I've seen a lot of people post this week, <laughs> uh, yesterday, that there is no nuance on this issue. People on both sides. And just the fact that there's another 50% of the people posting about it the opposite direction tells you that there's got to be a little bit of nuance, right? Otherwise, everybody would agree. But they're, they're, like we have this concept like there could be no compromise. It's all or nothing. The other side are not just people we disagree with. They are extremists. They are radicals. They are set out to destroy our country. They're people to be feared, not reasoned with, and certainly, certainly not fellowshiped with. And at one point, Paul would have agreed with that line of reasoning because that's the way that he handled people who disagreed with him. Matter of fact, uh, you know, if you ever stop to think about, we like to think about whatever's happening in our world at our time is the, the biggest, most important, most you know, drastic, most radical thing that's ever happened throughout human history. We forget that we're part of this grand, grander story. 
Have we ever stopped to consider that the political differences in Paul's days were just as important and just as controversial as they are in our day? I mean, have you ever read the book of Acts? There's some major battles going on. The stuff between Jewish believers and Gentile believers was a major, major battle going on in the church. People, the churches were dividing over that issue. People were being killed over that issue. They weren't just posting angry memes at each other. They, they weren't just protesting on the streets. I mean, people were being killed over some of the political, cultural differences in the New Testament church. And one of the guys doing it was Paul. I just, all, I just read the writings of one of the guys that was, was doing the killing, or at least standing by when the killing was happening. But you know what changed Paul? You know what changed Paul's value system? You know what changed Paul's identity? You know what changed Paul's... He met Christ. Once he met Christ on that Damascus road, everything about Paul changed. Everything that he once thought was important, everything that he once thought like this is going to save us, you know, this strict adherence to the law, this is what's going to save us. And this, his identity as a Hebrew and his identity as belonging to the party of the Pharisees and his, everything that he once thought of important, he said, that's not important anymore now that I know Christ. And he wrote about that in his letter to the Philippians. He said, I, I have reasons for such confidence. He's talking about being confident, you know, what we believe in. All. I have reasons. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. In other words, Paul is saying, you, you think, you think you're stronger on your views than me? I promise you I'm stronger. Look at, I'm, I have faultlessly, faultlessly fought for persecuting the church and, and this, my, my faultless uh, righteousness based on the law and, and who I belong to. But then he says, but whatever gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage. That I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. But that which has comes through faith in Christ. And, and what I hear Paul saying there. Is that his identity and purpose. Is no longer tied up in his pedigree or party. It, it's no longer tied up in being Hebrew. It's no longer tied up in belonging to the Pharisees. It's no longer tied up in being a conservative in regards to the law or a, or a, you know, a, a cultural warrior. He's leading the fight in the first century. He now considers all of that garbage compared to knowing Christ because he says, I just want to know Christ. And, and that's all that matters to me anymore. I just want to know Christ. And he's willing to shed all the labels and, and shed all the titles in order to know Christ. But the, he, he takes it a step further than probably we're willing to take it. He says, not only am I willing to shed the labels and the titles in order to know Christ, I'm willing to take on other labels and titles in order to win those people to my Christ. You, I mean, you realize what he said back there in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9? I mean, how many of us are willing to do that today? To the conservatives, I become conservative in order to help win the conservatives to Christ. To the liberals, I become liberal in order to help win the liberals to, to Christ. To the woke, I became woke. To the right wing, I became right wing. How many of us willing to do that? Don't, don't raise your hands. You know, like, no, I mean, we don't think in those ways today. We don't, that, that, no, that seems wrong to think in those ways today. And again, Paul's not talking about 
given up your values. The way Peterson puts it, I think, is right. I didn't take on their way of life. I kept my bearings in Christ, but I entered their world and tried to experience things from their point of view. I tried to understand where they were coming from. In order to understand where somebody's coming from, you can't yell at them across social media. You actually have to have a relationship with them and sit down and talk with them in a manner of gentleness and respect to understand where they're coming from. That's not saying you have to agree with them, but you have to be able to have that relationship. And in church, we should be able to have that relationship. I know we can't have that pretty much anywhere else in America today, certainly not in the political realm, but we certainly could have that relationship in church because we could treat one another with gentleness and respect and sit down and say, why do you understand it in this way? And why do you understand it in this way? And try to understand where the other person is coming from. We struggle to do that today, honestly, because we don't have the same motives as Paul. Especially if we talk about trying to sit down with somebody outside of the church to try to sit down and to try to understand where somebody's coming from, we don't have the same motives as Paul. See, Paul's motive is winning people to Christ. That's his motive. Not winning people to a party, not winning elections, not winning appointments to the Supreme Court. Paul's motive is winning people to Christ. That, that's, that was his motive, was winning people to Christ. And the way he figured you win people to Christ is you win by losing. And where do you think you got an idea like that? There was another teacher that Paul followed that t- said, if you want to be first, be last. And if you want to be great, you got to be the servant of all. And Paul, that's, that's, that was Paul's strategy. Like, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to win people to Christ because Christ has changed my life, and I want Christ to change other people's life, and, and this is the approach he's going to. Unfortunately, for the church today, that's not our motive anymore. Our motive's not as much about winning people to Christ as it is winning people to our side or, or winning people you don't win by losing you win by gaining power and that's a secular approach to winning is winning by gaining power what Jesus talks about is an upside down kingdom that really makes no sense culturally none whatsoever you win by gaining power that's the way it works right you win by gaining power Jesus said no you win by sacrificing you win by putting the needs of others before your needs you win by treating other people in the way that you would want to be treated you win by loving other people in the way that God loved us and and that's part of the upside down kingdom out one more passage from Andy real quick this is in the introduction This may sting a little bit, but just hang on. In 2020, Evangelicals America discovered what we value most. The political, social, economic, and health crisis didn't cause us to misprioritize our values. These events simply exposed what's been true for a long time. While our actions don't always tell the story, our reactions most certainly do. And the reactions of prominent pastors, Christian podcasters, television personalities, nonprofit leaders to the events that define 2020 revealed the disturbing reality lurking beneath Bible-laced rhetoric, faith claims, books, music, and sermons for a long time. Turns out what we say is most important is not actually what we consider most important. Our responses to 2020 made that abundantly clear. Even worse, our responses to the events of 2020 made our values embarrassingly clear. And people were watching, and people were listening. And I would add, people are still watching, and people are still listening. Consequently, folks who don't embrace our faith discovered what's most important to us as well. And while we, we may be surprised by what 2020 revealed about us, they aren't. They suspected it all along. Our response to the events simply confirmed their suspicions. 
Namely, that once you scratch off the veneer of our sermons and songs, we value what everybody else does. And what does the evangelical church in America value most? Winning. And what do we fear? Losing. Not winning and losing souls. We systematically alienated more than half the souls in America through unchristlike rhetoric and fear-based posturing. For all our talk of evangelism, revival, and reaching the lost, clearly those aren't our primary concerns. That's not what we value most. If it were, we would not have allowed ourselves to be dragged into and embroiled in far less noble conflicts with far less noble goals. If evangelism and discipleship were truly most important, we would not have so easily surrendered influence with those who need to be evangelized and discipled. Now, I... I almost didn't preach this message. <clears throat> Not because of what happened on Friday, but because of what happened on Tuesday. So Tuesday, the elders and I took a little road trip down to Hornwall. And um, there's, there's a ministry down there called Hope Center that Blondie Church of God and a coalition of churches have gotten started. And it's a drug and alcohol treatment center. And, and they've, they've got a men's center that's housing 30 uh, residents and they just built the women's that's the women's center that they just built and it was it's still partially under construction so we went and toured and we met with the leaders of that church and uh, we're looking at ministry opportunities for us as a church because we're debt-free so we've got to think about how we're going to you know reallocate resources and so this is one of the ministry opportunities that we've been looking at and uh, we've met with them two or three times but before we went we were at Blondie Church of God and we were talking with the pastor and he was talking about, he's, he's on fire for this. Jeff Gandy's his name. I mean, he's just like on fire over the top. Like, man, he's just wild. And um, he was talking about, he said, listen, if you do something like this, I'm just going to warn you, it'll change your church. He said, it'll change your church. He said, it's changed the way I preach as a pastor. Because I've got men and women coming into our church now that are hopeless. They're at rock bottom and they just need Jesus. And all the things that I was talking about in church, I had to stop talking about some of those things because that's not what they were interested in talking about. They weren't interested in the, the fusses and the debates and all the stuff that we like to fuss about in church and all those, like they, they weren't even interested in that. All, they just needed Jesus. They need Jesus. They, they are hopeless. They need hope. They need to know that there's some way out of this. They need Jesus. And um, we left there and we drove out and looked at those places. And as I toured and I met some of the residents there, I kept thinking about what, what Jeff said uh, to us about, you know, they just need Jesus. And I was thinking as I walked, and this is Tuesday, and I already knew what I was going to be preaching that day, and I was just walking around that center going, I'm talking about politics Sunday. <laughs> and if, if all of these guys showed up at our church on Sunday, that would change the way I preach. I would, I would want to talk more about, let's just talk about Jesus. Let's just talk about why we need Jesus. Because that's what they hear. Because when you're, when you're in the midst of addiction, are you worried about red states and blue states? You know, are you worried about what people are posting on social? I mean, when you, you're drowning. A drowning man only cares about one thing, getting saved. That's all you care about. You don't care about philosophies and doctrine. Well, what's, what's you know, when the lifesaver comes over to you, you say, now, what's your position on, uh, before, before you throw this to me, I'd kind of like to know how you voted, 
before you throw this lifesaver to me. No, you don't care about none of that. All you care about is that I got a lifesaver, and I'm going. That's all you care about. And I was thinking, you know, if these guys were coming to our church, that would change the way I preach, and I'd want to make it completely and totally about Jesus. And and I hope that in some way today I have, even in talking about politics. I hope in some way I have because for me. That's what it all comes down to. Um, I ain't never going to tell you how to vote. And I'm never going to stand up here and tell you which candidate is the most Christian candidate and, and which one you should vote for and all those kinds of stuff. And, and I'm never going to tell one group of people, you're not welcome here because, well, you don't really believe this way, so you don't need to be here, and you don't really do this, and you don't need to be here. If we agree on Christ, that's all that matters. If we agree on Christ... That's enough. And I just, I'll put it this way. I thought about this in worship, and I, sometimes when I think of stuff in worship, I know I shouldn't say them. <laughs> I, what I mean is, like, I didn't really write this out in my notes, but I thought about this in worship, and I'm just going to say it. Um, the Supreme Court's not my Savior, and the Constitution is not my Bible. Jesus is my Savior, and His Word is my Bible. And I'm a follower of the way before I'm an American. And I'm a follower of the way before I'm a... I ain't going to tell you which way I vote. <laughs> I'm, not that, I'm not that stupid. But whatever party I'm a part of, whatever party I tend to vote for the most, I'm a follower of the way before that. And if you're a follower of the way, then we got way more in common than we've got different. Let's pray together. Father, I'm thankful for this church. I'm thankful for uh, the fact that what I'm preaching today at this church is not radical because in the 20 years that this church has been around, this is what we've tried to practice and this is what we've tried to do. And uh, I know that there is a lot of, uh, there's a lot of mixed feelings going on in our country right now. And um, help us to understand the other side. That's, that's my prayer. Just help us to, to, to understand the other side. Help us to be careful in what we post and careful in what we say so that we don't unintentionally alienate the people we're trying to reach and the people that we want to introduce to you. Help us to have the mindset of Paul who put you and your son above all and he was willing to do whatever it took to reach people for you. Help us to have that mindset, God. Help us to... To have a mindset that all the other titles that we put and all the other affiliations and all the other views and all that stuff that we put, that those things are secondary to who we are in you. And uh, it's in the name of your son, Jesus, I pray these things. Amen. If you are encouraged by today's talk, feel free to share it with your friends. Please also consider rating and subscribing on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more, please visit us online at murrayhills.com.